of you were here at the last presentation that I did on Saturday, the last conference? Okay, so good, about 60% of you. Well, this is what I think is really relevant for us to do right now. Is what I want to do is I'm going to go back briefly on the last presentation that I gave um, this past summer, and then as well take it a little bit further before we start getting into the heavy stuff, because I think if we don't have the proper context is that we can talk about these things, and sometimes we could even misunderstand really what's going on. And it's important to make sure that we are all understanding what the play is. And if we don't understand what the play is, we can make mistakes in terms of our strategies of which we would try to use to overcome it. And that's where sometimes I think that we can miss the boat. So a quick review. It's an analog world to the digital world. So we're talking about, when we looked at the title of our conference, we're talking about mere simulacrity, right? Again, a simulacra or a simulacrum would be that which represents something that is real, but is not just a representation of it, but is actually a hyper-real, a completely fake, something that actually bears no substance to what the original really was. And when you go from an analog world, what, once again, what does it mean to be analog? And an analog would be a hard desk. This is real. Analog would be a pair of glasses, let's say, that have lenses on them that are prescription according to the needs that I have in my eyes. An analog would be a rotary phone, right? Remember that? And we had to dial somebody's number, you know, and it would, it would take 10 minutes just to dial one number, especially to get the area code in. Or now you just have this, right? It's a digital phone. So we had analog uses for things in an analog world because we lived in the real. We lived in what we could see, we could hear, we could smell, what we could touch. That's what it was. And even, it's not just a question of what we did in terms of living our lives or going about our day, but our relationships were real, right? Like when you meet somebody, you look at them in the eye, and you're, you're trying the best you can to understand that person, even if there's somebody who disagrees with you. Well, we've moved past that now, and as we were just talking about in the panel, we moved into a world now where you know, it's more about who is that troll, and as James was just saying before, this person might be an avatar of a dog face or a crusader, and they've got 50 other personalities anonymously that they use online to troll people. So, I remember we used to call that like multiple personality disorder? That used to be a real concern in the 70s. I remember there was a movie that came out called Sybil. It's a book called that as well. But now that's something that is commonplace for most people. Matter of fact, that's how they interact in their simulated world, is with simulated relationships and simulated personalities. Well, what ends up happening is you end up becoming rather sociopathic in the way that you do things. As a matter of fact, those that have decided that they want to be our technocratic rulers of our new and upcoming world, many of those people are, in fact, sociopaths. They are people that have made it their skill to represent being someone who they are not, if you can imagine that. So that's of a great concern 
but we are then transitioning into a digital world. What does a digital world mean? Now, I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow because we're going to do a quick review of Gnosticism tomorrow and how that really fits into things. James will be touching on that too as well. But we're going to talk about Gnosticism and how, boy, it would have been great if those that were talking about how the physical was not real, but the real is actually the spiritual, that which you cannot see. Boy, wouldn't they have loved to have had something like our digital world now, where you slip on a, a pair of goggles, and then all of a sudden when you have on that pair of goggles, you're in a completely different realm, and you don't even know how to handle it and so forth. Well, what if that was the world that they have asked you to stay in? Uh, James and I were talking about a person that we both know, Steve Coughlin, I believe, is that how I pronounce his name? Steve Coughlin, who is a brilliant man, and he was talking about the Matrix. And what he said about the Matrix was that basically you're in a toilet. If you remember that scene in the Matrix where Keanu Reeves has taken the red pill, and all of a sudden, when he wakes up and all of the, the electrodes and so forth pop off of his head and his body, when he's come to a realization that he's living, he was living a fake life, everything was fake, and this was the real, well, what do they do immediately? They flush you. You're done. You're just excrement to them. So you have to live in their hyper-real world. You're forced to live in a real, a world that is not real. A world that isn't even necessarily of your making, it's of somebody else's making. And this is the whole thing where it gets rather Orwellian again, and a little bit more on the Huxley side as well, is that, yes, you are living in a world where you are told that you must agree to the lie, and as well, you must lie to yourself. And if you don't agree to the lie and lie to yourself and live in the lie and repeat the lie, that somehow you don't deserve a spot in our society. You don't deserve a spot on Twitter. Maybe your Facebook page is going to get shut down and suspended for a week because you start talking about the real, because we have to live in the hyper-real hyper digital world now. That's where we have to exist. So, once again, let's listen to the man who's kind of at the forefront of things. And isn't it amazing? And I, I want to go over this. I know that Andy uh, blackpilled you, for sure, on the last session. But let's go back and understand what's behind the World Economic Forum. Now, as we do this, I want you to count how many times Klaus Schwab, and this was during the beginning of the pandemic, how many times he clenches his fists. Okay, so let's go ahead and count. In a college, you know, when you were in college, of those who were in secular college, before you knew the Lord, you would have turned this into a drinking game. But anyway, here we go. It's this pivotal moment. I see several priorities for the global agenda. We must continue to fight against the global pandemic. We must revitalize the global economy and accelerate its transition to net zero. We must preserve biodiversity by deploying nature-based solutions, and we must narrow the gap between the rich and the poor to achieve more sustainable global development. Okay, so Klaus is talking about, remember he's focusing in on a couple things, right? He's talking about net zero, 
He's talking making sure that we narrow the gap between the rich and the poor. He's making sure that you understand that this is our chance right now. We must all do this. When you thought, well, this was our chance, well, let's get rid of the virus. Let's stop this thing. We all want to get better, and we want to go back to work. We want to go back to our lives. Well, instead, you have a bunch of sociopaths. You have a bunch of people that have dystopian dreams that are saying, no, this isn't the time for that. This is the time for change, and we must take this opportunity to do these things. You must accept enviro-communo-fascism now. This is our opportunity. And then as well, you have leaders all over the world, even those that call themselves conservatives and Republicans, that are saying, yes, this is our opportunity. You even have who is now King Charles coming out and saying, we have a great reset. This is our opportunity. And you know that they're not getting rid of their private jets. You know that they're going to still have their foie gras with their steak tonight. But you, you, oh no, your electricity use is going to be measured. Your water usage is going to be measured. Matter of fact, you don't need to own things anymore. That's so passe. We need to be the ones that actually control everything. So that's where things were going. So you are in the midst of changing from an analog world into a digital world. And I think even more so from where we were in June of this year. Do you remember how much I told you things are going to be changing even more? They've changed a lot more, haven't they? I mean, you're looking back at 2020 during the pandemic, like they were the salad days. Oh, weren't those great days? You know, we just thought that we were going to get over this thing, you know, it was going to pass by or, you know, people were going to get well again or whatever and we're going to be okay. But instead, they were using it. Now think about it for extent for a second. If all of a sudden you have resistance against what Klaus was talking about, what is it necessary to do? Just like what you did when you didn't get the result that you wanted initially, if you're the one that's, I don't know, counting votes in Maricopa County. You extend it. And extend it for weeks until you get the result that you want. It's the same thing. If they didn't get the results that they wanted to have in 2020, what do you do? You extend it to 2021. Hey, look, if you lived in China right now, is it getting better or worse? It's getting worse because they don't have the results that they want just yet. And maybe you're going to find out, oh, the code on my phone is red now. I have to go to the concentration camp. I have to stay there until they tell me I can go. Or maybe I'm going to disappear. I can't use travel. I can't use anything else. So they extend it. And they make it useful for their purposes. Because what's important to them it's not necessarily that we defeat the virus, we move on, and we go back to our lives. Everything must change, and it must change now. But what is needed to capture your support isn't necessarily totalitarian, tyrannical control. What is needed to involve you into a new moral process is a new religion, a new faith, a new set of morals that you need to live your, your life by. That which guides you on your daily basis. And, and as well, it's what guides your conscience. Is this right or is it wrong? It's like every time that you're drinking a bottle of water now, and you're in the airport, then you go to throw it away, well, you've got three different color things that you have to choose from, right? 
and you have to make a moral choice to do the right thing. You've got to question that, actually. Is, does really any of this really matter in the long run? Or is it more about giving you a psychological choice and an ethical choice that you have to make about your waste? We'll talk about that later. Well, a lot of this goes way, way, way back. I mean, we could go back to Rousseau, of course. But a lot of this goes back to just a gentleman by the name of Antonio Gramsci. And this is what he stated. And really what he tried to do is he was taking Marxism, but again, we're talking about ideological gain of function, and he's putting a cultural emphasis on it. He's saying, look, it can't just be the means of production, okay? There's also, you, this, the reason you guys weren't able to do what you wanted to do in World War I is because so many of the people that were in World War I that were suffering through this, I mean, this catastrophe, this holocaust of people and so forth, the thing is that they still had their faith, they still had their families, they still had their cultures. Even the young men who weren't married or didn't have a girl back home, they still had that ideal. I mean, goodness, aesthetically, that's what nations like France and, and the UK did in building their buildings in the Victorian era. That's why so many of the buildings, if you go to London right now in the Whitehall district or that area around Westminster, why so many of the buildings that were built during that period had beautiful women adorning them and strong men because those were the ideals. And that was the culture and the idea that you wanted to make, make sure stayed, that was protected. That's what you were defending. And the possibility that, yes, if you were a young man, that you would meet that beautiful young woman someday and you would lay down your life for her and for the family that you would eventually have. But Gramsci would say, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is, you're worried about this oppressed oppressor thing in terms of the economic, and yes, economic is important, but you have to understand that for most people as well, the economic is important. But what's really important for us is the faith and the culture that we have that is so important. And if you could please turn off your cell phones, folks, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> but that's what's so vitally important to us. And this is what he would say, quote, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, okay, first stop right there, we're already talking about this. In the new order, socialism will triumph first by capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. So when you're talking about the consciousness, it's what guides your thoughts. It's what your thoughts are contained within. It's where you know where you can go and where you shouldn't go. Or I better not start thinking about that. That could lead to some bad actions. It also tells you what good things you should be thinking of. Well, they're saying that we need to transform the consciousness of society. And this is something that H.G. Wells would say. Now, all of you, you know, again, would remember H.G. Wells as a science fiction writer. He would say the character of the open conspiracy, 
And this is what he wrote in his book, The Open Conspiracy, Blueprint for a World Revolution, in 1928. He says, the character of the open conspiracy, and that open conspiracy would be the thing, that roundtable groups and so forth, they would be there and talking about these things. They had Chatham House rules and so forth where you couldn't say who said something, but we can start to write many papers and journals and so forth saying the things that we want to accomplish, saying the things that we want to do, saying the things that we will do, making reflexive statements of these things will happen, like you just heard from Andy's presentation. We're going to tell you what you're going to do. It's going to be the open conspiracy. We're not going to try to hide it. You're going to have to deal with it. You know why? Because while we're talking about these things and writing about these things, that will end in your destruction. That will end in your children's slavery, both physical and mental. During this open conspiracy, you're going to be concerned about, hey, how's that game the Cardinals have with the Bears this weekend? Hey, yeah, uh, maybe if one of your teens, 20s, whatever, you know, hey, I hear the Kardashians are doing another show. Or they're worried about the selfies they're putting on Instagram and how many likes they have and how many shares they have. They can get that dopamine hit every single time for their next post that they're going to put up. We start getting into this, and we leave behind the important parts of what's really happening around us. And as James Lindsay has said consistently, the magic power that he has in understanding and answering what's happening right now is that he reads their books, he reads their papers and their articles, he listens to their things that they say what they're going to do. And he believes them. And you'd better start believing too. Because you don't have the results like you do in your election here in Arizona without something else happening. And you have to understand, you probably don't know at all what you're going to be doing on Monday. You, you probably don't know what you're going to eat. You might not know if you're going to work out or not. Some of the people that I used to do business with knew exactly what they were going to be doing on Tuesday afternoon in December in 2025. They've planned it out because they're planning for success. And what we have to understand, if we do want to take back top-down power, is one thing that we can't do is just say, we need power. What you have to do is start making strategies and plans and making sure consequentially that your plans and your strategies are something that will actually work and have to make sure that those plans, that they resonate in the hearts and minds of other people. That you're not just doing this for selfish gain. You're not just doing it for that utopia that you've started to dream of that puts you in power. Well, power for the sake of power is nothing. That's tyranny as well. Even if it's done with you calling yourself the right. So, H.G. Wells says, the character of this open conspiracy that myself, the Fabians, others that are involved in things, the Tavistock Institute later, what would eventually become UNESCO, the United Nations, 
which H.G. Wells would write the charter for and so forth. The character of this open society, the movement towards a world collective. So we're talking about collectivism. All right? One of the key elements of socialism and communism will now be plainly displayed. It's out in the open. It will have become a great world movement as widespread and evident as socialism or communism. So he's writing this in 1928. Stuff's already gone down in Russia. Now it's called the Soviet Union. And right about this time is about when Stalin is about ready to take a big move on Ukraine. Ukraine's about ready to go through about four years of extreme pain, of starvation, of limits to their movement, of health passes. Yeah, that happened then. A great world movement as widespread and evident as socialism or communism, it will largely have taken the place of these movements. So he's saying socialism and communism Yes, but this new thing will take their place. So in other words, you're taking some of the elements of those things, and now you're talking about taking the elements of these things that have worked, maybe disposing of some of those elements that did not work, and then he says this, it will be more. Oh, it'll be more than Marxism and communism. It will be a world religion. The future is not secular to our adversaries. Oh, far from secular. You see, the problem is, if it's secular, it's kind of nihilistic and so forth. I mean, it doesn't have a moral core. See, the future... It has to be very, very religious. But it's not a religion with objective truth. It's not a religion that frees. It's a religion that constrains. It's a religion that insists that you bow down and you live by the performance standard. And if your will is not in line with the performance standard that the new religion of the new world is telling you that you must be in line with, then we will actually go against your volitional, your volitional decisions. In other words, it'll be by force. So the Cultural Revolution of Mao, and this is in China, and now we're going to fast forward to the 1960s. China just went through the Hundred Flowers Campaign. It's around the time that the Great Leap Forward was a great leap into hell. And in the Hundred Flowers Campaign, Mao said, hey, I'm paraphrasing, what we want to make sure is that we hear your disagreements. If you don't like what the Communist Party is doing right now, if you disagree with our methods, let us know. 
We want a hundred flowers to bloom all over China. Oh yeah, by the way as well, those of you that have problems with each other, those of you that are in different sectarian groups and so forth within China, those of you that have traditional warring factions and so forth in different tribes within China, we want you to disagree with each other too, by the way. That's the other part of the hundred flowers campaign. So you that are Taoists, we want you to start to really argue with the Buddhists and and as well argue with some of the other Christians that have been part of what's happened with the explosion of Christianity that took place in the 20s and 30s. We want you all to start disagreeing with one another. But yeah, especially, please name, address, and make sure that you then postmark that to us and tell us what your main complaints are, because we want to listen to you. Almost like where you were really restricted on social media for the past several years and told what you could and could not say. And all of a sudden, a savior comes and tells you, you're free again. You can say what you want. Tweet what you want. Just be cautious. I'm not making it a, a blanket accusation, but please be cautious. We've seen this pattern before. So the Cultural Revolution of Mao, then, comes after the Hundred Flowers campaign. But by the way, the Hundred Flowers campaign lasted about a year and three or four months, came to an abrupt end. People were rounded up. People were put in, in camps where they went through mental transformation and so forth, brainwashing, etc. Other people were executed. So the Hundred Flowers campaign did not end well. Several hundred thousand people were rounded up and told, you can't think that way anymore. Boy, were people afraid to voice their complaints anymore after that, weren't they? So that's where the Cultural Revolution starts, in context. So Mao's saying we need to get rid of the old ideas, the old customs, the old cultures, and the old habits. The old ideas. We've already seen how you all fight with one another. We've already seen a lot of your old ideas don't work and end up with a lot of you going into gulags. We have to change your old ideas. So that's all going to change. Your old customs have to change because those old customs that you do are traditional and they don't allow the Chinese people collectively to move forward into a new age, into a new world. Those old cultures, of course, are dead cultures. We need to develop a new culture. And those old habits that lead to those old cultures, ideas, and customs, even the old way of dress, that needs to be done away with. You need to basically, all of you collectively, need to have a death and resurrection of China. That's what needs to happen. And of course, the ones that you enlist to do this are the people that you actually have that are young people that are in school that are indoctrinated and have this stuff shoved into their head. They're little red books that they carry around. This is their read. This is their measuring stick, which we would call a Bible, by which they understand to see the world. It's almost as if you are putting on a pair of glasses and saying, this is the way now that I see things. I have to see things this way. And now it's sharp. I can see, I can understand things now. And those old ways have to be dispensed with. That's what happened under Mao's Cultural Revolution. In many ways, this is what's happening, and this is from the World Economic Forum. I believe Andy had this up as well. This is the Great Reset. Now, when you see the Great Reset, you see a center. It's basically three rings. 
The Great Reset is at the center, but the Great Reset is something that continuously moves. It's not something that is static. So you can't think of it that way. The Great Reset is something that leads to something. But this is theirs, by the way. Some conspiracy uh, website did not create this. Okay? So you have the Great Reset, and you're talking about you need to shape the economic recovery from COVID. You need to harness the fourth industrial revolution. We'll talk about that in a second. You need to revitalize global cooperation. Get us out of a unipolar world into a multipolar world, which is not really a multipolar world. It's actually going from a multipolar world into a unipolar world. It's the exact opposite of what you say you're going to do. Restoring the health of the environment, which means that we need to get off of oil and gas. So when we start talking about what was possibly the worst thing that's happened to us in the past four or five years if we didn't have COVID and all these other things was the fact that they started getting rid of plastic straws, right? They found some picture of a turtle off the coast of Guatemala with a, you know, with a uh, plastic straw through its nose. They go, oh, look at this. It's killing all the turtles, right? We have to stop. I remember being in a, a meeting with a luxury hotel group that I was on their advisory board. And we spent a half a day talking about plastic straws. Oh, that was back in 2018. So what's the thing about plastic straws? What are they made out of? Right. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Okay, right. Plastic straws are made out of plastic. Where do you derive the plastic from? What kind of products? Petroleum. So the thing is to try to make sure that we are eliminating petroleum products, that we are eliminating the progress that the petroleum industry has actually made with all of their refineries, with all of their production facilities, with all of the uses of petroleum. I remember my Uncle Jim in Pennsylvania, he worked for, for Sun Oil. And you would think, oh, he's for oil company. What was his division? Was talking about the uses of petroleum wax. And the main thing that he was working on was the wax covering that you would have. You remember this? On the outside of your McDonald's or Burger King cups to keep it cold? That was their big thing. Well, that's gone now. Eliminating petroleum and petroleum products to where wherever the petroleum industry was, let's say in 2002 or 2004, 2008, at its highest, when it was producing everything, that you want to disrupt and dismantle the petroleum industry. You want to eliminate all those products where it doesn't have anything to make anymore, so we've got to shut the plant down. Sorry, those people that work there, they get, they're going to be out of work. They need to find other lines of work. Maybe they need to go back to school. Maybe they need to become activists. So you eliminate the industry, they have to shut it down. Maybe they end up just stopping everything together at that, that particular factory or that, that refinery, and it goes away. And within four or five months, they just return it to green space. So if you were to restart the petroleum industry, how long would it take if you don't have one refinery shutting down and oil production facility, but you have seven or 800? Would take you a long time, wouldn't it? And an enormous cost that we just can't afford. 
So what you want to do is get us to a point to where there's no going back. So when you take a look at this wheel, you have everything from justice and law, future of mobility, forests, the circular economy, corporate governance, taxation, LGBTQ, LGBTIQ inclusion, gender parity. You have internet governance, 5G, digital identity, drones, blockchain, COVID-19s there, financial monetary systems, biodiversity, cities and urbanization, climate change. You have everything here. In other words, it is the reset of everything. But it isn't, it, a reset doesn't happen all at once. If you had that red reset buzz button, remember that Hillary Clinton was carrying around when she was Secretary of State? Hey, hit the reset button. No, it's the beginning of that. It's a process. It's not a one-time thing. So what you're trying to move into is the fourth industrial revolution. But it's a global simulacra. The fourth industrial revolution isn't just how, about changing the way we do things. It's about changing you. And we're going to talk more about that tomorrow when we start talking about Gnosticism. Before we get into the what of the fourth industrial revolution, it is wise to discuss the how and the why. How? Well, simulacra and simulation. Simulacrum means likeness or semblance. Please take a picture if you need to on this. Likeness or semblance. Simulation is the imitation of the operation of a real-world process or system over time. Now, a man by the name of Jean Baudrillard in Simulacra and Simulation wrote that there were four stages that he described. Now, I'm not going to talk about Wokel's strawberries because Wokel's here and he'll talk about his own strawberries, those of you that enjoyed that, that particular illustration last time. Uh, he was the one that came up with that. But there's many others that you can use. What he would say is this, is the first stage is a faithful image or copy where we believe, and it may be correct, that a sign is a reflection of a profound reality. This is a good appearance in what Baudrillard called the sacramental order. So in many ways, it's like what you would do if you look into the mirror. And you look into the mirror and you say, okay, this looks good. This is the way it should be. Maybe in the past, you would have somebody paint a picture and say, this is how he looks. Or maybe you're someone who's saying, you know, I've learned from the masters on how to be someone who's a craftsman or someone who's a builder, and I'm going to imitate these things that someone has done. Or I'm going to take somebody almost like Colm Keel did with what they call the Catholic. Oh, I could go into that story. I don't want to too far. But where he basically created the copy of a Psalter, and the original creation of the Psalter said, that looks too much like mine. That's mine too. So that would be the first stage, something that accurately represents something that is real. That's the first stage. The second stage of this process, though, would be this, is a perversion of reality. This is where we come to believe the sign to be an unfaithful copy, which masks reality as an evil appearance. It is of the order of malfeasance. So now we're not talking about wanting to make sure that we reflect the reality of the situation. No, no, no. There's ill intent involved now. There's something that's moving away from it, but it's, in essence, being a deception. The third stage masks the absence of profound reality, where the sign pretends to be a faithful copy, but is a copy with no original. So it's moved so far from the original. It has no elements of the original at this point. 
Signs and images claim to represent something real, but no representation is taking place, and arbitrary images are merely suggested as things which they have no relationship to. And Baudrillard would call this the order of sorcery. So, more or less, we, were, we referred before to those ladies uh, whose first name or last name start with K. How many pictures that people actually put up on Instagram right now are not photoshopped before they go up? See, because you're not trying to present yourself as something that is real, that is, this is a representation of me, this is me here, but it's better than you there. Maybe it's even better than where you are because you've as well manipulated the scenery in back of you. Maybe you, you're on a European beach somewhere with mountains and so forth, but there's a guy behind you that's in his 60s in a Speedo. So you take that out, and maybe the, the water's not as blue as you thought it would be, so you make it bluer than it is. And maybe that mountain is, is not as tall and as prominent as you thought it would be, so you make it more taller and more prominent. Maybe with you, maybe you take a few pounds off. Maybe you smooth a few things out. But stage four is pure simulacrum, in which the simulacrum has no relationship to any reality whatsoever. Here, signs merely reflect other signs, and any claim to reality on the part of images or signs is only the order of other such claims. This is a regime of total equivalency where cultural products need no longer even pretend to be real in a naive sense because the experiences of consumers' lives are so predominantly artificial that even claims to reality are expected to be phased in artificial hyper-real terms. You want to know something that really shook? Now, all of you are going to understand this. You all are red-blooded Americans. Now, I imagine most of you here red-blooded Americans, went to the movies this past year. And I bet you one movie that you went to go see is Top Gun 2. Now, Top Gun 2 was really successful. And one of the reasons that has been repeated is that, well, it was real. Because they used real effects. In other words, there was no special effects Sure, there might have been some colorization and so forth, but they used real planes with real pilots, and the actors had to be in the real planes when they took off and when they were doing the scenes. Where, for so long, you've been watching people in CGI and in special effects. To the point where, oh, that's fake. Or if you're watching an Avengers movie or you're watching some Marvel movie or whatever, it's just basically a glorified cartoon. You're watching some of the new Star Wars films come out and characters that are dead, even some like Peter Cushing, I believe, that has been dead for years, is all of a sudden making an appearance. We have the new Indiana Jones trailer that's coming out. And what do they have? They have Harrison Ford playing himself the way he was in 1979. But they're going to de-age him. Because nothing's real anymore, so all of a sudden you start to question what's real. You get to the point now where people are so in love with Disney World and Disneyland that they have year-long passes, and there are people literally that go to Disneyland or Disney World or the Magic Kingdom more than a hundred times a year because that's the real world to them. Everything's right here. 
Everything's the way it should be. The ride is still doing the thing it should do. It's a small world. It's still the way it should be. But it's an artificial representation of what the real is. The elephant still comes up and squirts you on the jungle cruise. The pirates still do their thing. Of course, now they've wokeified everything. Space Mountain still does the same thing, but it's like it's a real rocket ship. I can pretend. And that pretend reality of something, but yet is safe and not dangerous like an actual moonshot, somehow keeps me safe and protected and so forth. So it's something I can experience. But it's completely divorced from what the real is. And Baudrillard would actually talk about this. Wokel's examples are still the best, though, with the strawberries. And I'm sure he'll go over that later. But you're talking about a simulated world. And boy, if those Gnostics could just have, if they could just have that ability to be able to make everything fake and hyper-real, oh, they would have jumped it at a heartbeat. Do you think for one second that Hitler would not have made use of CGI and After Effects and all these other things if he could have done it? to give another representation of what was actually happening. Oh, the use of propaganda would be wonderful. My gosh, if he could have done that, he could have fought a simulated war against a simulated enemy. And maybe he could have even been man of the year on Time magazine, like Vladimir Zelensky. Oh, that's right, Hitler was man of the year. Anyway, so this is an element of alchemy. And alchemy is the scientific method. Basically, and this is what they would say. Not they, there's a particular person that would say this. He would say, by the way, this is George Soros. He would say, the scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, objectively, right? That's what the scientific method does. While alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth, to know what is true. That of alchemy, operational success. So as opposed to truth, they would phrase it as what truth works. Not what is true that we went through the scientific method to find what is actually objectively true. But we already have an order in mind that we want to accomplish something, and that's where we have to end up. We have to end up with what we see to be the end that we want to arrive at ahead of time. That end means that we've been operationally successful. Just like anything else that you would do. If you're a strategist or if you were involved in a war, operational success means winning. So what you want to make sure that you do is you go through whatever processes are necessary to basically create something that a non-reality that you can convince others that that non-reality is the truth that they need to, the truth, that they need to embrace as opposed to the truth of what the scientific method would find. Let's say like if you were having an election. So if you were the person who's actually in charge of the election in Arizona, Maybe you're running for governor. Operational success for you is you winning. Not the scientific method. 
So you have election alchemy. Kind of get what I'm saying? One way that you do this is through a social theory called reflexivity. Reflexivity has other uses as well, by the way. But reflexivity is practiced by creating an atmosphere of transmission, transmission, and acceptance of either true or false statements in order to fulfill the manipulative function. So in other words, you're trying to manipulate. Let me give you a true or false statement here, an objective statement, or trying to find the truth would be, if I said, it isn't raining right now, and you would go out and say, correct, Mike, we've measured things and so forth, it isn't raining, or it is raining. No, Mike, you're wrong. It isn't raining. It's in Phoenix, and it rains six days a year. I do appreciate the days that it does rain here, by the way. It clears out all those particulates out of the air, right? But let me give you an example of a reflexive statement. A reflexive statement would be, this, this is a revolutionary moment. Now, the truth of that statement depends on your acceptance of that as true, or your rejection of that would mean that that loop of reflexivity is cut off. So what I need to do at this point is, is to make sure that I fill the propaganda pipeline with as many things as possible, no matter what, no matter what media, no matter what information, no matter what fake news stories, no matter what fake research papers, constantly to tell you that this is a revolutionary moment so you will believe it. And if your acceptance and your acceptance and your acceptance and everyone's acceptance says, yeah, this is a revolutionary moment, then you create that truth that this is a revolutionary moment. Like, let's say if I said, okay, this person over here in the blue suit came in with a virus, and when he was standing up here and he was sick with this virus, he was presenting to all of you, and he was starting to spread that virus everywhere. You don't know this yet, but that virus can kill you especially you in the front row. But those of you who are in the back row, as soon as you guys went out and went into the bathrooms and so forth, you might have caught that virus too. And I'll tell you what, that virus is going to get you. It's going to get you. But I have a solution for this. The solution is my wife and Kathy Kang use an old Chinese recipe of a vaccine that they have prepared back at the table over there, and if you all will go there and get vaccinated before tonight's session, you can protect yourself from the Woodard, from the Woodard virus. It's a New York virus. Okay? And we're going to be okay. Now, no, those of you that decide you're not going to take that Chinese, ancient Chinese vaccine, I can't let you back in here. It's not safe. And then it would become a, not a virus of, the Woodard virus would be a Woodard of the unvaccinated. Now, what I would do is I'd make sure that we push out notifications for you when you're at dinner, telling you how dangerous it is, and telling you as somebody else has just tested positive for it, and somebody else is just, and I'm going to do some newscasts, they're going to tell you somebody else tested positive for it. I'm going to make sure I tell you, oh, 
We lost one of our friends that was here at the conference today. They didn't make it. And it's because of the Woodard virus. So you spread fear. And you make something true that maybe wasn't exactly true. But it accomplishes something. What does it accomplish? I'm in control of your evening now. And those of you that stood in line and shoved a rusty needle in your arm was something you don't even know what it was. What was I trying to do there? I don't know. And what you do is you start to create fertile fallacies, things that aren't really true statements, but are false statements that are received and believed with the purpose of manipulating opinion. That's what I was saying is when I said that the gentleman over here in this second row, that if I start to say that he passed away, but yet I tell him, hey, look, don't come tonight. I want to make sure that you have dinner with one of our other speakers tonight. They really want to ask you some questions. And then if I come back tonight and say, that gentleman's not here, I think he's passed away. That would be a fertile fallacy. It's not true. But the thing is, the next day when he shows up, you go, but oh, but he's here. Oh, you're right. I guess I was wrong. But the fertile fallacy worked for a time. And as long as that lie that I told you works long enough to get you to do what I want you to do, then it works. As long as it has legs and you believe it and you do what I want you to do, it works. That's what a fertile fallacy is. The thing is, is that fallacy can lose its fertility. And then you got to come up with another lie. But this is how you work something called the dialectic, something you're going to hear Dr. Lindsay refer to, you're going to hear uh, as well, some of our other speakers refer to this as the dialectic. Basically, it has several different sources. You can talk about kind of a Rousseauian sense of a beginning of a dialectic. You can even go further back that, than that into a Pygmalion sense of things. But Kantian dialectics, and then as well, everybody knows the Hegelian dialectic. But the thesis, antithesis, synthesis is the one way to describe it. For our sakes, in terms of how it's mainly used today in short periods of time, is problem, reaction, solution. Create the problem. So if I really, my intent is, I want a solution. I want to change everything across the globe by 2030. Everything in every nation. Everything in every civilization. Everything in every company and every religion and every everything else, everything individually I want to change by 2030. Then I create the problem. Then I create or encourage the reaction to the problem that as well I created to then come to that predetermined solution that I really want to get to. Because that's the whole end goal. The end goal, let's say, of critical race theory is not critical race theory. Critical race theory's end is getting you what critical race theory is a tool to get you the thing that you want. And now all of a sudden you have new reactions to these things. Now, if you can have reactions that are purposed and managed in the way that it gets you to the resolution that you want to get to, that's what you want to do. So if you're on both sides of this, if you're on the Black Lives Matter side of things, if you're on the Ibram X. Kendi side of things, if you're on the, oh, 
I don't know, the Tim Keller side of things, the Gospel Coalition side of things, but then you're creating the reaction to that as well. The problem was is that they weren't creating the reaction because we got ahead of them. Those of us that started these things in 2016, 2017 and started to explain what this was and what they were doing, we got ahead of them. So they had to come up with a quick reaction. Some would call it a neo-reaction. But all of a sudden, these reactions to this is wrong and oh, the woke is bad also comes with anti-Semitic behavior, white identitarianism, critical theory basically from the right side of things. And of course, a lot of these movements that are well-funded start saying things like, well, we need to get rid of this whole thing known as the Constitution. It's worthless. You know, we need to get rid of inalienable rights. You know what the problem for all this was, was all that liberty that you all love. That John Locke guy, he's really the problem for all this. You know, all this freedom and liberty of conscience and freedom of religion. No, we need a state magisterium. We need to have tighter control. We need to have a technocratic control of things. That's really what we need to do. I'm sorry, you're calling yourself conservative? Yes, we're conservative. You're not really conservative. No, no, that's not conservative, guys. Because when you start saying, I want to get rid of inalienable rights, well, that was the same thing that the leftists were saying just five years ago when you were criticizing them. Those are things that Russell Moore was saying. And we were all criticizing him. All of a sudden, we're saying, oh, that's good. So what they do is you end up amplifying things like Drag Queen Story Hour. And you point at that and say, if you want to get rid of Drag Queen Story Hour, you've got to get rid of your inalienable rights. You've got to get rid of liberty, because that's what caused that. Ooh, I don't know about that, guys. See, that's the problem, man. It's all the liberty. I'm sorry. Was it not true, we're in a Christian context now, that the, for the past 12 years, the church, the great big Eva evangelical church and reformed evangelicalism was myopically obsessed with critical race theory and social justice. It's almost like we had to put a pause in evangelism. We had to put a pause in the things that we've the truths that we've contended for, the souls that we've gone to save, the humility that we brought, all that had to stop. And you had conference after conference after conference, book after book after book, and article after article after article about understanding your unconscious bias theory, understanding how really you're an oppressive person and you don't really understand it. We need to get rid of whiteness. And really, whiteness, they're really talking about capitalism. We went through that constantly until about the end of 2019. And the real thing that ended it, that really blew it up, I remember because Twitter went silent for about five days, <laughs> was when we released an interview that I did with two people that would call themselves classic liberals which would be Dr. James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian. That was the atomic bomb. Because what we did is we read their playbook. We already knew their playbook. And Dr. Lindsay, who I, I, he has his strong convictions, but I believe that God has made him 
this incredible intellect to both understand these things and explain these things. And that's when anybody that tells you, oh, you shouldn't go and listen to James, Lindsay, and so forth. What were those guys doing back in 2018 and 2019? Oh, that's right. They were retweeting social justice up and telling you that you should listen to Beth Moore. I'm glad that you're here. But people that are involved in this process, in this process, are involved in sorcery. This is wizardry. And they're the majority of Christian leaders whose names you know were involved in this. So you create the problem. You infuse every level of society with CRT. You insist on diversity, equity, inclusion, compliance. You attempt to normalize transsexual lifestyles. This happened within the church. Where do you think Revoice came from and living out? It came from leaders in the PCA and from guys that were trained at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You introduce Drag Queen Story Hour, the most offensive, horrible, mind-destroying thing you can possibly see that will cause a reaction from the right, from moms who love their children, from dads who are starting to get inspired and say, I cannot see this go on. So you inspire men and say, I don't know what to do, but we've got to stop this. So you introduce things where they can LARP as if they're men telling them what they need to do is destroy the nation and balkanize it. And what you do while you're doing this is you create all this frustration and anger and disgust is then on social media as you destroy free speech. You make sure that they can't tweet these things or they get deplatformed. You make sure they can't say something that is true on Facebook or it gets put in, in Facebook jail. You get them deplatformed from Instagram. The only place they can go is Gab and listen to a bunch of anti-Semitic talk, which just gins them up even more. You create the problem. Then you create the reaction. You encourage wild-eyed conspiracy theories. You go way past the facts that we're talking about and start saying crazy stuff that people start embracing because they don't know what's true. They don't know if up is up and down is down anymore because everybody's lying to them. You encourage violent extremism. You start spicing the talk in some of those other channels with that kind of talk. Anti-Semitic behavior, white identitarianism. You encourage talk about secession, which is sedition, and balkanizing the nation because you're creating that reaction. And what you get to do is you get to do what Mao did in the 100 Flowers campaign. So you can identify where your enemy is. Oh, I got your address. I know who you are. We know exactly what you do. We're going to encourage you to keep on going because we want you to actually populate 
your ranks more. We want your ranks to grow so we know who in our dragnet we need to eventually eliminate. You steal elections. Just right out in front, and, or no one can deny it. Why you suppress free speech? You know why? Well, of course, for the reason that you want your candidate in who's going to continue the revolution. But the other reason you do it so boldly, like let's say in Maricopa County, where, oh, sorry, all machines broke. Yep, sorry, can't, yeah, not going to be able to do anything today. Sorry. Because they do it because you know that it's a bunch of baloney. And you get frustrated. They want that frustration to grow. They also want to say, we're going to do this to you. So it might cause a reaction. So what, what does that do for them? It gets them to their predetermined solution. They declare those who oppress your enemies, enemies of the state. They look conservatives and Christian, they, they lock conservatives and Christian nationalists out of the state economy once they decide that they're going to go ahead and balkanize. And they're going to have all sorts of other digital solutions and all this other nonsense, crypto kind of things, and you've seen how that's gone. And Dr. Lindsay and I were warning people about that for years, and we were mocked for it. We tried. They limit freedom of movement of those that oppose the state. We might want to talk about ESG as, understand, I'm also part of the travel industry and have been for 20 years. Kathy Kang was just at IBTM in Barcelona. They explained, look, hey, air travel is going to have to basically get whittled down severely. You're going to have to start eliminating short-haul flights. We're going to have to start you know, working on getting trains up to meet our 2030 objectives. Cruise travel is going to have to be whittled down significantly, which just means overall travel has to go down because the fact is, is that we're not going to let everybody to travel. We'll let those that are safe to travel, just like if you're in China right now, and because you said something against the government, you can't get on a train, you can't get on a plane. If you want to go someplace, you got to walk. So they're going to suppress your free travel. They're going to marginalize those that, those that wish to preserve the Constitution from society. Because both the radical right and the radical left are going to say that we have to get rid of the Constitution. And they're going to say, we have a crisis here. We just got to find a new social contract. That's what we got to do. So we got to have balanced parties from both sides to meet together. And none of you that want to still preserve the Constitution. That's the solution they want to get to by 2030. Okay? A lot of you, like Charlie was saying, and I see it in your eyes, you're looking back and saying, Mike, I'm tired. It's been a big fight since 2020. I mean, this is exhausting. Okay? Well, drink your orange juice in the morning. <laughs> get your cup of coffee. Got a long way to go. But I'm telling you, if you will stand up, and if you will not just fight for your freedoms and liberties and for humanity and for the Christian faith and for the gospel, if you will stand up and do those things, it will be worth it not just for, for you, but for your future generations and children after you. 
You get to play the heroes. All that CGI garbage that you see in the movies of what a superhero is, that's not a superhero. And it's true, you're not actually being a hero. You're going to live the normal Christian life. You're going to act as you should act. That is, courageously. And as Paul said, if I perish, I perish. There was an article that came out just yesterday that with Tucker Carlson and many different leaders that James and I were listed as the top 20 dissidents in the United States that have stood up against all of this over the past three or four years. And words like courage and courage and courage, it's like, look, just do what you know you must do that is right and don't look back. And yes, there are moments of crisis that we come to where we go, man, if I do that, it's going to be bad. It's going to be serious. If, if we say that, or if I join with James, or if I talk with this, it's going to be, I'm going to really get hit hard. Okay, let it happen. Because you know what? Whatever happens on the internet, it's all fake anyway. So just go. Do it. Do what you know you need to do to save this nation. Do what you need to do to save the church. Do what you need to do to protect your future generations, your children, your grandchildren, and everyone else. Do what you need to do to protect your community. That's what we're at right now. That's really where we're at. The two key words of what they're doing is they are disrupting and dismantling. They disrupt what was in the previous meta system, what we knew was normal, and they are dismantling the previous systems and deconstructing the past. What do you think the 1619 Project's all about? To say, oh, all of that is nonsense. When did the 1619 Project really start to roll out? 2017, 2018, especially 2019. What happened in 2020? The pandemic. What didn't happen in 2020? The 400th celebration of the landing of the Plymouth Pilgrims, which we've been planning for for the past five years. None of those celebrations happened, did they? We didn't even talk about that. We talked about what happened in Jamestown in 1619. So, as Klaus Schwab with his closed fist would say, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Everything that you know you thought, everything that you thought you knew must be disrupted and dismantled to usher in the fourth industrial revolution. After you disrupt and dismantle everything, then you can build back better. You destroy it all. You level it to the ground. It's in rubble. It's in pieces. And now you say, now we will build. We just destroyed everything. It was us that shut you all down, made you do all the things, destroyed your lives. Now we will build back better. Boy, that's a great pep speech. <laughs> oh, build back communist. But it's not just that. You're building back with a new religion. So the fourth industrial revolution is, yes, the sense of a global brain. Andy was referring to that earlier. The elimination of sovereign nations. That's why I named my organization Sovereign Nations. The human envelopment employment is minimized. So your jobs, that's everything will start to be slowly chipped away at. The rise of the creative class. In other words, saying that really how you need to busy yourself is whatever's happening online. 
the end of analog policing. Why do you think defund the police was happening? Defund the police, you get rid of analog policing. If you get rid of law enforcement in your area, what do you get rid of? The law. Because then you can fill it in with something else. The rise of the surveillance state as opposed to law enforcement. So we can just see if someone's doing something bad according to our new moral code. A change of dietary consumption. That's the big thing that you're starting to see, especially all over Europe, but it's going to happen here as well. The eliminating of, pri of private farming, the eliminating of beef cattle, of pork, of chicken, and they're going to tell you that you need to just eat vegetarian. They're even going to encourage you, you know, to get up in the middle of the night and catch as many cockroaches as you can. Don't kill them, because if combined together, they will make a great filet. The end of private ownership. What happens if you end private ownership? You end private property. You end sovereignty over things that you have that the state can't intrude upon. The beginning of the circular economy. James will talk about a little bit of that in the future. And the Internet of Things, which was already referred to. The Internet of Things means that everything is part of basically an omnipresent, an omnipresent knowledge base of every atom and molecule in the world. Know everything about everything everywhere. So what's really going on? Well, your participation is necessary. We do have something that's more or less like a social credit system that's not just for you, but for every corporation, every governance, everything, anywhere. It's environmental social governments. Environmental, meaning that you must be in line with everything that we say is environmentally friendly or that is sustainable. But sustainable doesn't necessarily mean sustainable in the way that you think it needs to be. Social, social justice. We need to have everything according to the new moral code that we have in regards to critical race theory, in regards to uh, intersectional behavior, et cetera. Everything has to be done according to our new social code. If you're out of step with that, your credit score goes down. Governance. Governance is just simply you must obey what the government tells you to do. And if you don't, if you don't, bad things happen. So every pillar of our civilization is being brought into compliance with ESG standards, governance, corporations and financial institutions, educations, education and religion. What did Andy refer to and what's the name of my talk? The third leg of the stool. Governance, the state, corporations and financial, corporate and governance, that's fascism, and then education and religion. So it's a great reset of faith as well. Top-down, meaning that desired elected officials and directors in office to enact legally, basically a postmodern change to things. What is real is not real. What is unreal or hyperreal is now the real, and you must obey it. Bottom up from the bottom, reflexive events, fertile fallacies that create feedback loops, create and opportunize crisis events to reinforce postmodern concepts. And then, of course, inside out is the middle. That's the glue that holds our society together. So reinforce desired postmodern change in faith, cultural events, and community gatherings. Even things like football. So football seems to be more concerned about what? Social justice right now. Football all of a sudden is more concerned about LGBTQI than it is about just advertising football and playing football. No longer is football just about, you know, their main sponsors no longer like Michelob and Bud Light. You know, they're 
new big sponsors have any, just the primary point is to make sure that you're pushing for LGBTQI inclusion, for transgender rights, for social justice. That's the whole point. You must do those things. Now, you know what? It's time for you to go eat. So this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna hold it there. We're gonna get into this tomorrow because I've just gone about an hour and 15 minutes and there's, there's so much more to do. So let's do this. We're gonna go ahead and pause and we're gonna take a break. We're gonna let you go and enjoy whatever place you like to, to eat food. And then we're gonna come back. Dr. James Lindsay will be starting at 7.30 p.m. sharp. So if you don't usually drink coffee in the evening, that's okay, because Dr. Lindsay will absolutely bring it tonight. I have no doubt about that. We've had a great day today. I hope you think so. I hope you think that you have been educated tonight. So let me pray for you, and we'll get going, and then we'll see you back at uh, 7.30. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunities that you've given us. Lord, we just pray that these people that are in this room, and those that are listening as well in, in the future, we pray that they will be infused with these truths, that they will consider them, that they will as well be discerning and check to make sure that the things that myself, Andy Woodward, and as well, Dr. Lindsay are saying, are true. Let us test these things. And Lord, we just pray that we will be not just informed, but inspired to do the right thing at this moment in history. We ask this in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you.